So I'd like you to imagine that it is January the 23rd, the afternoon of January the 23rd, 1594, and that the figure in blue here in the foreground is William Shakespeare out for a stroll. Behind him, you'll see London's theatre district with Henslow's theatre, The Rose, immediately behind him, where that very afternoon there was a production of Shakespeare's play Titus Andronicus, which brought in three pounds and eight shillings, according to Henslow's accounts. If we zoom out a bit, we get a larger picture of Shakespeare's London. Here to the north is the rival playhouse to Henslow's, the theatre owned by James Burbage. And quite possibly at the same moment, there would have been a rival production of Shakespeare's work by Pembroke's men uh, at that theatre. They certainly owned Taming of the Shrew and some of the Henry VI plays. If we look elsewhere, here St Paul's at the centre of the city would have been the heart of London's publishing industry. And there you could buy copies of Shakespeare's best-selling poem, Venus and Adonis, which was to be joined by the rape of Lucrece in May of 1594. Now, Venus and Adonis was dedicated to the Earl of Southampton, who lives here at Gray's Inn, one of the inns of court, which was the main location where Shakespeare's generally male literary readership would have spent its time uh, attending plays and reading poems. And these men would also, probably, many of them have visited Westminster, the center of government, uh, and I suppose the ultimate center of patronage for someone like Shakespeare. So I think Shakespeare, at the beginning of 1594, as I'd like to imagine him, is weighing up his options. Things are really already going exceptionally well. He has plays by him being performed by multiple acting companies, Strangers Men, Sussex's Men, Derby's Men, Pembroke's Men. He has a hit poem. He's attracted the attention of a leading uh, aristocrat. And this is a very successful career but it's also a pretty normal one. If we look at the kinds of rivals that Shakespeare had, men like Marlowe or Drayton or Johnson or Webster or Chapman, they all have this kind of spread of career. Plays performed by multiple companies, they're interested in printed verse and they're interested in attracting patronage. Shakespeare it's already quite established in that circuit with more than half a dozen plays. Um, but in 1594, January of that year, he is contemplating a radical step. And in this lecture, I'm interested in trying to assess the consequences of his decision in June of that year to buy a one-eighth share in an acting company, to become a sharer, uh, to invest a great deal of money and to link himself to a single troupe of players something that no literary playwright had ever done. Now, the idea that uh, this is, in fact, an early portrait of William Shakespeare has not yet fully uh, won the confidence of scholars, though I think if you look carefully, the similarities between the Hogenberg view of London and the Shandos portrait of Shakespeare are very striking. I think he's using that blue hat to hide the early onset baldness. 
And I think he's sort of turning the other cheek there because he's worried that his mum might see the earring, uh, <laughs> which he's kind of acquired as a raffish new London uh, gentleman's touch. Um, the reason I think it's useful to set these figures alongside each other is because we cannot escape having visual impressions of our authors. And then in the absence of portraits, we tend to invent them. Uh, and the portrait of Shakespeare that I think we've most been driven towards accepting by biographers is the idea of Shakespeare as a traveling player. This is Vincobos's Balkirmis uh, from 1608, depicting a set of traveling players setting up in a small town, uh, offering their wares. This is generally the way in which people see early Shakespeare. They imagine him having joined up with some troop of players as they pass through Stratford sometime in the late 1580s. Now that entire story is based on a single sentence in a misattributed pamphlet called Green's, uh, Green's Groat's Worth of Wit, in which there's a sentence about Shakespeare as being wrapped in a player's hide. And that has become the entire basis of this story of Shakespeare as a traveling player. Now, Shakespeare is, in fact, much more socially established than that kind of background suggests. He's the son of a burgess of Stratford, um, an extremely well-educated humanist poet. Um, and his background is no different from that of a Christopher Marlowe, who was the son of a saddle maker and shoemaker, or Ben Jonson, whose father was a uh, bricklayer. All of the London literary talent, the playwrights of this period, came from that kind of second-generation artisan background. Some of them went to university, but very many of them, um, such as Webster or Johnson uh, or Monday uh, or Drayton, fellow Warwickshire playwright poet, did not. Um, and some of those men did indeed perform uh, occasionally on London stages when their own plays were uh, being put on, as Johnson did, for example, or as Monday did, or probably also Kidd. And sometimes they were mocked for this, for being players. Johnson was much more often mocked for having been a player than Shakespeare was. But I think it's very dangerous to turn this into this narrative of Shakespeare as somehow an outsider, awed by uh, a literary firmament and coming in as some kind of uh, itinerant traveler who works his way up from patching plays to become, becoming a literary genius. I don't think there's anything in the biographical record to suggest that. And I think this is a backward reading from that decision that Shakespeare made in 1594. If we want to think about a realistic picture of Shakespeare, I think we should start with looking at the works that he actually brought out in print in his early career. And this is Venus and Adonis, brought out by Richard Field, London's premier literary publisher, in April 1594. And we have Shakespeare there quoting from Ovid, Vilia miritur vulgus, mihi flavus Apollo, pocola castilia plena ministret aqua. Let the vulgar herd 
be interested in low things. I crave the golden cups of Apollo uh, and the cups of the muses, is what Shakespeare is saying here. Very bold declaration, uh, publishing a literary work uh, with a premier literary publisher, making his claim as a uh, literary poet, playwright. And the work is dedicated in intimate terms to Henry Ryosley, the Earl of Southampton. Um, and there's no sense in the way that Shakespeare is introducing himself here uh, in uh, that dedication. No sense that he has any affiliation with an acting company, in which case he would sign himself as the member of the household of an established lord. And the fact that Shakespeare's plays are distributed across multiple acting companies, again, proves that point. So Venus and Adonis is immediately joined by The Rape of Lucrece, which is dedicated in still more intimate terms to the Earl of Southampton. And if we look at the first Shakespeare play to be printed, uh, that very Titus Andronicus that we saw on stage on the 23rd of January, uh, 1594, we see that it has been played by the time it comes into print that year by the Earl of Derby, the Earl of Pembroke, and the <coughs> Earl of Sussex's servants. It's a play distributed across acting companies, a play in which Shakespeare has lost his financial stake as soon as he has sold it to an acting company. So Shakespeare in 1594 has a way of operating that is very similar commercially to that of other playwrights. He has a background that is similar to other playwrights. Um, but things are about to change. In June of that year, he is going to join an acting company. And what I'm going to suggest in this lecture is that this is actually the transformative decision in Shakespeare's life. It's the decision that moves him away from the mainstream, not just in terms of wealth. He becomes far richer than any other playwright or poet of uh, his time. Um, not just in working methods, in being tied uniquely to a single acting company from that point on, but also, much more fundamentally, in the style of his writing. That it's really that decision that makes Shakespeare Shakespearean, in the sense uh, that we use that term today. So this is a list of works that Shakespeare has produced before the summer of 1594, and it's a pretty impressive resume already. Um, so what we have here is, are those two uh, printed poems, uh, which become extremely popular. We also have Shakespeare working collaboratively, as uh, new research now confirms, with major university playwrights, Henry VI, probably with additions by Thomas Nash, uh, and Titus Andronicus, uh, co-authored with the Oxford playwright George Peel. So Shakespeare is moving comfortably in that sort of company. He's also been involved in major multi-author projects like Edward III, uh, which is sort of produced by around about half a dozen playwrights, the same with uh, the additions to the play Sir Thomas More. And the direction of travel that Shakespeare's career is taking, I would argue, is, if anything, towards the more literary, towards the more highbrow, towards the more formal. And that trajectory would be one that we could call Johnsonian, though it precedes uh, Ben Jonson's career. 
So if you look at the second half of the career, you, what you see is Shakespeare uh, becoming increasingly explicit in the way that he is following uh, accepted classical models of composition, becoming more ornate, uh, becoming in a way more architectural in his writing style. This is not at all a trajectory towards the development of what we would end up thinking of Shakespeare's uh, artistic movement, which is a movement towards relational drama about how characters respond to each other. It's not the direction I think we see Shakespeare moving in this period. Now, it would take me quite a while to sort of demonstrate the case that Shakespeare is uh, a literary playwright in this first phase of his career. And I'm going to have to make do uh, with just one example, uh, the example of Richard III. Now, this is a play uh, probably performed by Pembroke's or maybe Strange's men in the period 1592 to 1593, perhaps also by a, collab by a joined company when Strange's uh, join with the admirals with Edward Alleyn as the lead player. Um, now, there are a number of qualities to the play Richard III that would make me call it fundamentally literary rather than kind of character-based in its composition. One of those things is that it has 52 speaking parts, an uh, exceptionally large number, none of whom, apart from the lead protagonist, uh, survive across the full run of its five acts. Um, and it has a great deal in common, for example, with the great drama of Marlowe. It's dominated by a captivating uh, anti-hero who controls the stage, around whom all the other characters are really sort of constellational uh, reference points rather than fundamentally actors in their own right. It's also a play very dominated by uh, an explicit set of relationships to other well-known works, the works of Marlowe, uh, the works of Thomas Kidd, uh, and for example, also the works of Seneca. So it's, it's, it's a work dominated by lots of Senecan, i.e. the uh, Roman tragic poet, Senecan features very frequent use of stichomythia, the line-by-line -line exchanges, very many uh, long uh, echoing uh, speeches by those very Senecan characters, ghosts. Um, it has an opening monologue on, along the Senecan model, uh, now is the winter of our discontent, setting a, pre a predominant mood of gloom. If you take uh, something from, for example, the first scene of the play following that uh, monologue, uh, the interview between Richard and Anne, which is performed over the hearse of uh, Anne's uh, recently deceased husband. What you see there is a, a scene very deliberately modelled on a Senecan precedent. It's not actually a scene from uh, the Chronicles at all. The wooing of a widow by the man responsible for her husband's death. And the, the scene that's lying behind this is the interview between Lycus and Megera in Seneca's Hercules Furens. Uh, and Shakespeare is here using uh, the Senecan trimeter for this stichomythic exchange, this one-by-one one, uh, line exchange. And I would I knew thy heart, Richard, tis figured in my tongue. I fear me both are false, then never man was true. Well, well, put up your sword. Say then my peace is made, that shalt thou know hereafter. But shall I live in hope, 
All men, I hope, live so. Vouchsafe to take this ring. To take is not to give. Now there's a kind of wonderful, balletic, balanced quality to that kind of writing that is profoundly influenced by uh, Roman models of rhetoric. So you see all of these uh, neat uh, antimetabole and chiastic features. False, true, live, live, hope, hope, set in that kind of almost sort of jewel-like structure there. Um, lots of these sort of neat reversals on concepts, take, give. Now this is, I think, wonderfully established drama and it helps to create Richard as this captivating anti-hero. But it's not, I would argue, very much a play about the relationships between individuals. The relationships that we see in, these play, in this play are really more the relationships between Shakespeare as a literary creator and a set of other literary creators, not just Seneca, but also figures like Marlowe and Kidd, whose Spanish tragedy also has a uh, trimeter wooing scene by, uh, between Balthazar and Belle Imperia using exactly this kind of pattern. <clears throat> so Shakespeare has been moving in a direction towards this increasingly uh, literary drama would be my argument. But in 1594, he makes this very bold decision. He decides to invest around about 50 pounds, which is two years wages for uh, a educated man in England at this time. He decides to invest that by becoming a shareholder in a newly formed acting company, the Lord Chamberlain's Men, an acting company that uh, by order of the Privy Council is to be one of two uh, duopoly companies that will now have the right to perform at court. And by paying that 50 pound uh, share, Shakespeare is buying a one-eighth share of the apparel of an acting company, the props that they use and the costumes that they use, uh, and also a one-eighth share in the plays of that company. So this is a substantial investment in what is intended to be, uh, and indeed proved to be, a very long-term uh, financial arrangement, one that actually continued to Shakespeare's death. And those people that he bound himself to uh, they keep appearing in Shakespeare's legal papers. Those that survive appear in his will, uh, and he appears in their wills when they die. So the company, uh, first of all, it starts out appearing in June 1594 at Newington Butts, which is uh, just about a mile south of London Bridge, a little bit off the map. They uh, don't find that a very adequate theatre. Uh, on October the 8th, they're reported as performing at the Cross Keys Inn in the centre of the city where the local inhabitants complain about the noise of their drums and trumpets uh, forcing them to move out in a kind of nimby way. Uh, so in spite of their, uh, their patron doing his best for them uh, in trying to kind of keep them with this central London base, they instead move up to the Theatre Playhouse, which becomes their home for the next five years. An unsurprising choice because the Theatre Playhouse uh, was built and is owned by the father of Shakespeare's lead actor, Richard Burbage. It was built by his father, 
James. So what happens is that you get the establishment of this duopoly arrangement. Admiral's men, which take Marlowe's stock of plays, end up taking over the Rose Playhouse to the south of the city, and Shakespeare is part of a company to the north. Uh, and they start dominating uh, the market for Christmas plays at court. So uh, on the 27th of December, we see record of Shakespeare's company with Kemp, uh, one of his comic actors, and William Shakespeare, recorded as uh, performing amongst the Christmas plays of uh, that year's court uh, entertainment. Now, I want to argue that this did something more to Shakespeare than simply make him financially secure. I think it changed the way that he wrote. <clears throat> so here is the list of work that Shakespeare produced from mid-1594 to 1598. We see things like the dropping away of printed poetry, which stops interesting Shakespeare from this point on. But I think we also, I would argue, start seeing a different way of writing. And one of the most obvious things that happens in those first two years is that Shakespeare produces two plays in which the process of casting uh, for a production becomes a key topic in the plot. So Love's Labour's Lost, which is the first play that Shakespeare writes for the new company, has the pageant of the Nine Worthies put on by Don Armado and his troupe, and A Midsummer Night's Dream famously, of course, has the rehearsals of those rude mechanicals. Now those play rehearsals, of course, they show Shakespeare having a new interest in the physical business of putting on a play. Uh, the actors in those performances make all the kind of mistakes that one would expect uh, slightly amateurish performers to make in comparison with professional players. They do things like forget their lines, they want the scripts altered, they corpse, uh, they read their cue lines as part of their own performance. Um, and these are the kinds of things that one might expect a playwright like Shakespeare to pick up on once he is in the daily company of a set of players. But much more fundamental than that, what I think these rehearsal scenes show is a physical specificity to Shakespeare's acting parts. Shakespeare's characters after 1594 start to become physically distinctive, something that no playwright had done before across multiple parts in a play. And that, I think, is also the key to why Shakespeare's character, in, the characters in Shakespeare, change from being, in a sense, architectural and uh, classical to becoming relational. Um, so this is the rehearsal scene in Midsummer Night's Dream. This is my chance to do uh, some voices. <laughs> is all our company here? Here, Peter Quince. Flute, you must take Thisbe on you. What is Thisbe? A wandering knight. It is the lady that Pyramus must love. Nay, Faith, let me not play a woman. I have a beard coming. That's all one. You shall play it in a mask and you may speak it as small as you will. And I may hide my face, let me play Thisby too. I'll speak it in a monstrous little voice. Thisney, Thisney, ah, Pyramus lover dear. I will roar you as gently as it were any nightingale. 
You can play no part but Pyramus, for Pyramus is a sweet-faced man, a proper man, as one shall see in a summer's day, a most lovely, gentleman-like man, therefore you must needs play Pyramus. Well, I will undertake it. <coughs> now, the part of uh, Bottom here uh, was certainly taken by William Kemp, who I've already mentioned, uh, the most famous player of Shakespeare's ensemble in 1594, somebody, you know, already, for example, a letter bearer for the Earl of Leicester, traveling with him as part of his troop to the Low Countries in the 1580s. Uh, something, really a figure from an earlier generation to uh, uh, Shakespeare and Burbage, his new lead tragic actor. Fantastically physical figure, uh, you know, a really major athlete, uh, Will Kemp. Uh, also somebody famously ugly, as he writes about himself being in this, his own publication, uh, The Nine Days Wonder, and somebody who makes much of his plain speaking. Uh, he says that he doesn't like to use grand words. Uh, so characters like Bossom and then later characters like uh, Lancelot Gobbo or Dogbury, clearly written for this hulking physical presence. Now that I think is one part of what Shakespeare is doing in a play like A Midsummer Night's Dream, that he's writing for uh, a star like Kemp. But that was not really what was unique about what happened after 1594. Star players had always had uh, playwrights tailoring parts to them. Uh, and Kemp is, for example, advertised on the cover of printed plays as a feature of those plays in production. But what I think we start seeing is that this physicality of individual players starts to produce something much more complex, something I would like to call relational drama. Uh, a drama where character starts to become not just debatable in terms of its interior motivation, but debatable in the set of emotions that tie characters together. Um, now, it's sort of almost kind of considered a bit embarrassing for professional academics in literature these days to talk about character. It's kind of considered something a bit that sort of school kids do and that we should be talking about much grander things like sort of Marxist political forces or so, something like that. Um, but character is a, a technical achievement of, uh, of drama and, and to to kind of get into the, the kind of mechanics of drama, uh, of drama and, and character creation is, I think, uh, a very useful thing. And who better than to bring us kind of mechanics of drama than Germans? Um, Manfred Pfister has written this fantastic book called Das Drama, uh, in which he analyzes very acutely how the effect of character is produced in plays. And he sort of divides this book up uh, in a very kind of fantastically logical way. Uh, so section 1.4.7 to 1.4.19 deals with the functions of character creation. It's kind of, it's got something like kind of Volkswagen to it, I think. Maybe that's not such a good thing to <laughs> compliment people on. Um, but anyway, Pfister, he, he says the, the sort of basic tools for creating character are referential speech and expressive speech. Uh, he says, really, in early modern drama, in Renaissance drama, these are the two dominant modes. And referential speech is simply uh, speech where somebody is described. So the most simple way 
in which you can have referential character creation is through a chorus saying, this is what this character is thinking. Uh, expressive speech is where a character tells you themselves what they are thinking. Uh, so a soliloquy is uh, the standard form of expressive speech. And if we look at the rude mechanicals scene, we can say, okay, yes, there are moments where character is in a sense being described as through a referential frame. So Thisbe is the lady Pyramus must love is a referential uh, statement about character. I have a beard coming is an expressive statement of character. It's a character telling you uh, something about themselves. Now, once you have a set of physical characters, a degree of complexity enters into those statements because what you have is an explicit statement of character. I have a beard coming. But there might be an implicit statement that kind of undercuts that, uh, which is perhaps you don't quite have very much of a beard yet at all. So you already start to create, I think, a slightly more complex kind of character if you're thinking of individual players as you create a statement like, I have a beard coming. But one of the things that uh, adds to that is that Shakespeare, after 1594, starts using uh, techniques of characterization that are actually not normally associated with Renaissance drama at all. Uh, Manfred Pfister says they're really a phenomenon of modern drama. Uh, and this is partly appellative uh, characterization. Appellative characterization is where uh, persuasion becomes part of how a character uh, is characterized, i.e. Um, how uh, they are trying to influence people around them and how they respond to attempts to influence them. So it's a kind of relational bond. So he says the greater uh, the appellative uh, characterization in the scene, the more acts of persuasion and signs of acknowledgement of persuasion you see in a scene. So something like uh, Quince is, uh, Pyramus is a sweet-faced man, therefore you needs must play Pyramus, is giving us implicit and explicit forms of characterization. It gives us something about <coughs> Quince as a character. Uh, it also implicitly tells us something about uh, uh, what kind of character dog, uh, Bottom is here too. Uh, perhaps not such a sweet-faced man, but that he might be flattered by such a reference. Um, and finally, what you have is phatic speech. Uh, phatic speech, uh, according to Fister, is really unknown in uh, Renaissance drama, apart from in Shakespeare. And this is where characters simply speak to fill up the time, to keep the bond between figures. Uh, to tie them together. He says, for example, this is a very striking feature of Beckett's work, uh, that characters often just sort of burble on to try and fill gaps. And this is very much a marker of Shakespearean speech post-1594. Nay faith, well, no, no, and you may, and I may. Uh, that whole sort of network, I think, allows us to see how something like the Rude Mechanicals ends up producing not just uh, a distinctive figure in bottom, but a distinctive community where this group has quite a complicated relationship to someone like Nick Bottom, who they mourn when he is lost, who is in certain ways boastful, but who's also rather sweet and willing to be helpful, uh, who everyone sort of looks up to, even as they think perhaps uh, he tends to go over the top. What we find 
in these post-1594 works is, I think, a kind of very complicated relationship between uh, this physical distinctiveness in imagined character and the way in which that lends complexity to the interiority of characters themselves. And we see it in other parts of Midsummer Night's Dream, for example, in the relationship between Helena and Hermia, the two uh, girls or women who find themselves in uh, the forest of Athens uh, uh, looking for lovers. And Helena is famously tall and thin and white. Hermia is low and dark and fierce. And this is the basis of most of their rows together as they um, accuse each other of being, you know, a puppet or uh, a, a vixen and a shrew and being called little. Uh, and what you get is also this sort of paradoxical thing where Hermia, though she be little, is fierce. Um, and this actually just starts happening more and more across Shakespeare's uh, plays as you move across. This is the uh, rehearsal scene, or, or the performance scene, rather, in Love's Labour's Lost, where we get the pageant of the Nine Worthies. And Holofernes, this thin figure, uh, has been given the role of Alexander the Great, for which he admits he is or parted, which is a neologism. It's the first time that word or parted has been used in English. Uh, and I think it's very telling that Shakespeare should have come up with that neologism right at this moment where he's sort of thinking about the way in which, in which one might cast a work like this. So he says, I will not be put out of countenance. And then uh, the aristocrats viciously mock his countenance. Thou hast no face. What is this? A sitten head, the head of a bodkin, a death's face in a ring. Uh, an old Roman coin scarce seen, half-cheek in a brooch. Um, so you have all this kind of abuse that is directed at Holofernes, who's sort of struggling desperately to take on this role. And then he, he has this response, which I think is very characteristically Shakespearean, uh, which is um, actually sort of a rather moving, uh, rather morally powerful line, where he says, this is not generous, not gentle, not humble that suddenly cuts against that line of abuse. Um, and I think this physicality of players, this way in which Shakespeare is thinking about individuals as he casts his plays, um, is part of the key to the way in which his writing changes after 1594. And you find this even in really relatively minor little playlets within plays, such as this, uh, the um, momentary row as uh, Doltesheet in the second part of Henry IV is about to be taken off by a beadle. Um, this is just a character called the first beadle. Um, but as uh, Doltesheet is being taken away, there is again this mockery uh, of him as this thin figure, uh, standing in contrast to the uh, supposedly pregnant Doltesheet, uh, though uh, the beadle denies this and says she just has cushions under her dress. Um, so the uh, hostess is saying, what if the fruit of her womb miscarry? Uh, again, this is a very, very kind of characteristic mode of speech, slightly overgrand that the hostess tends to have. The beadle says, oh, well, she shall have a dozen cushions again. Uh, they have but 11 now. Uh, and the doll's response to this, sort of this attack on her own bulk is, you rogue, come bring me to a justice. 
Yes, says Dolchester, you starved bloodhound. Goodman death, Goodman bones, thou atomy. Uh, you know, this, this, this thin, miserable figure. You thin thing, you rascal. And Beadle's kind of uh, characteristically sort of fatic uh, space filler of very well. Now, at a moment like this, uh, it's clear that Shakespeare was thinking of a particular actor, a particular actor who looked thin. And we can actually tell this because when the play was printed, it was printed from Shakespeare's working papers, his foul papers, and um, Shakespeare did not, when he first wrote that scene, write First Beadle. He wrote Sinclo, uh, the name of John Sinclair, an actor in his company who was famously thin, um, who appears in later plays too as um, a thin man. And this is again a feature entirely unique to Shakespeare, the slipping in of actors' names as he composes, his tendency to write first for uh, an individual and second to give that character a name. So throughout this scene, we get synclo, 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 rather than Beadle at all. Get the same thing in Much Ado About Nothing, again sat, set from Shakespeare's Foul Papers, where the entrances are for Kemp rather than Dogbury. Uh, and Cowley, uh, another actor in the company, rather than Verges. So Shakespeare, as he is producing that first draft, is thinking of a set of individuals he knows and the way in which they might work on the stage rather than anything else. So all of these entrances are for Kemp. And it was ultimately that set of players who put together Shakespeare's folio after his death and put their own names uh, onto the opening pages of the work, Kemp and Cowley, Hemmings and Condell, the two remember, and remaining members of the fellowship, were the ones who brought that edition to the press. So Shakespeare's career, I'd like to argue, was shaped by those figures, and it changed the way he thought about drama more fundamentally. People like Will Kemp, William Burbage, who became the first Hamlet, the first Macbeth, the first Othello, uh, and all the rest of the major tragic roles. And then Robert Armin, who became the comic actor after uh, Kemp left the company in 1600. So going back to this view of Shakespeare looking over London, I'd like actually to imagine that these two ladies are not uh, ladies at all, but perhaps two young boy actors who uh, here, perhaps a, a budding Hermia and Helena, tall and blonde, and with Burbage there standing ready to take on a heroic role as Shakespeare has his initial thoughts about a new play that has the working title, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Thank you very much. <laughs>